It's great to see you all this morning. I hope you're really happy to be here this morning. Oh, good. And I hope you still will be in about half an hour's time from now. That would be good. I'd like you to remember back to when you were a child, when it was your birthday. And I'm assuming most of you had birthday candles on your birthday cake. Yeah, some of you probably still do. Some of you have given it up for health and safety reasons. But, you know, when you used to, your mum used to light the candles on your birthday cake and you just went, (gasps) ready to blow them out. And then someone would say, make a wish. I wonder if you can remember some of the things that you wished for at the time, long time ago for some of you. Or, you know, you'd be listening to a fairy tale and uh, generally speaking, at some point during that fairy tale, somebody would say, um, offer somebody three wishes And I wonder if you had the three wishes, what you would actually wish for. But you know, today I'm going to be talking about the word hope. And the first thing that I did when I thought about this word was I looked it up in the dictionary. And the definition that the dictionary gave said to wish for something with expectation of its fulfillment. And I thought, hmm, wish. The problem with the word wish, it does take you back to the birthday cake, doesn't it? Or it takes you back to the fairy story. It's a wish. It's a kind of a wishy-washy kind of thing. And yet the hope that we're talking about this morning is the hope that is defined in the Bible. And it's not quite the same thing. We could say, oh, I hope the weather is good on Saturday so that I can go to the beach Some of you around are hoping that by the end of November, you'll have grown some facial hair. (laughs) Only the guys, hopefully, not the women. Somebody did come up and said, are you a a sister? And I was like, what? Yeah, I'm not growing any hair, yeah? For some of you, you're doing better than others with that. But you hope that by the end of the month, you might have something to show for it. But this is not the type of hope that we're talking about this morning. The definition of hope in the Bible is this, a confident trust and an indication of certainty. It's something much more, it's more certain, it's more firm, it's more solid than the type of word that we normally use, hope. So I want you to just bear that in mind as we go through this morning, that that's what we're talking about. Second thing about the word hope, if you go back to your school English lessons, is that hope can be a name word or a noun. Do you remember that? It can be a hope, or you can think about the hope. It's a noun. But hope can also be a verb or a doing word. I actually wrote in my notes a doing word, an adjective, and then after thought, oh, that's wrong, isn't it? (laughs) It's a verb, it's a doing word. It's I hope, you hope, we hope. It's active. And so as we think about hope today, we're going to think about hope the noun. What is this actual thing that we hope as Christians? And then think about how we hope. I'd like to read some verses from a book of Romans, which is about halfway through the New Testament. Um, Romans is a letter written to some guys in Rome, believe it or not, which is where it got its name from. And there's a lot of theology, a lot of information about God in the book of Romans. So I'm going to read from chapter 5, from verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, 
But we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, some of you have been Christians for a long time and you'll really know, you'll be really well aware what all those words mean. And I hope that as you listen this morning that you will be encouraged again by listening to an explanation of it. But for those of you, maybe you might be checking things out and you might be thinking, well, actually, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. Then I hope that you will really gain something by what you, you hear. So from those words then, therefore, since we have been justified, it's like you have to do the justified bit before you get to the hope. It's the key, it's the door to open to get to the hopes. So what does justified actually mean? I'm going to tell you something now that you're going to find really difficult to believe. I mean really difficult to believe. But it's true. I haven't looked it up on Google. It's actually true. Next year, it's 2013. 2013, myself and my husband Al will be celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. I know. I told you it would be hard to believe. 25! How on earth did that happen? Where did that time go? Well, you know, back in the day when I got married and I kind of looked into the future and thought, when I've been married for 25 years, what am I going to be like? And I kind of imagined a sort of an old woman with grey hair, maybe a bit curly, and a love of sort of silver things that you put on your mantelpiece and have to dust. That's what I thought I would be like 25 years on. And it was not something that I was really looking forward to, if I'm honest, the idea of turning into this woman that I could see. So 24 and a half years later, how are we doing? Well, I'm keeping the grey hair at bay with a little help. (laughs) You might think I'm old. I don't feel old. Your judgment of that is probably a little bit based on how old you are. And I have not started to stack my mantelpiece with all sorts of things that are silver. But, you know, when I was looking forward to this and thinking, oh, no, it's all doom and doom and gloom, there was one positive thing that I could see about being married for 25 years, apart, obviously, from spending 25 years with my husband, which I need to put in. But there was another positive thing, and it was this. When we got married, we bought a house, and with the house came a mortgage that was 25 years long. And I thought, when I look forward, at least, yes, I might be old, yes, I might be grey, but I'll be debt-free, I will have paid off my mortgage. Unfortunately, (laughs) two house moves and some dodgy endowment policies later, we still have many years to run on that. But I was looking forward to being debt-free. And you know, debt is something that we have to accept as part of our modern life. Probably isn't anyone here who can go out, write a cheque and buy themselves a house. If you can, then please talk to me. I'd like to meet you. But, you know, we probably can't do that. My son's just gone to university a couple of months ago and already he's got quite a big, sizable student finance debt. It was the only way he could go. It wasn't possible to do it in any other way. And controlled debt is part of our life and we have to live with it. But even controlled debt 
you know, it affects what you can do in your life. I can't go into Leon tomorrow morning and say, I'm going to take six months off because I'm going on a trip around the world. So you can stop paying me for six months. And then when I come back, you can start again. Can't do it. Because every month, Britannia Building Society, bless them, reach their hand into my bank account and take a big proportion of my salary. So my debt affects my life, even though it's controlled. And we all know, don't we, that sometimes when debt gets out of control, it can be really, really destructive for people. People take their own lives sometimes because of debt and issues. And just as a little aside, you know, we're coming up to Christmas Christmas is such a good time to get into debt. And I just want to encourage you, do all you can to avoid getting into debt, particularly at Christmas. And we've been talking about this in our life group. It's amazing how the banks aren't quite doing what they're supposed to be doing apparently at the moment. And so you get lots of other companies going, well, we can help you borrow money. We can let you have money. You just make a phone call, 10 minutes, it'll be in your bank account. Or we can help you buy that washing machine a little bit at a time once a week. And the interest rates are absolutely frightening and people are taking advantage of people who maybe are hitting hard times it's not their fault their lives are unraveling because of job loss or what have you and debt is a really you know when it gets out of control it's just a millstone around people's necks but you know what we have a worse debt problem than that as human beings it's not a financial problem but the bible calls this problem sin And if you're not a Christian or you're looking from the outside, you think, oh, yes, sin, that's like, don't do this and don't do that. And that's all Christians are about. Thou shalt not. And sin is a difficult thing because things that we think are wrong today may be different to how we saw it 20 years ago or a few generations ago. There are apparently a few ancient laws that have been repealed now, but apparently it used to be illegal to die in the Houses of Parliament. It used to be an act of treason, or it may still be, to put a postage stamp bearing the Queen's face on upside down. I didn't mention this one at the nine, but we'll go for it. It's illegal for a woman to be topless in Liverpool, except as the clerk in a tropical fish store. (laughs) Apparently. That might not be true, but it was funny. If someone in Scotland knocks on your door and wants to use your toilet, you have to let them in. And it is legal to murder a Scotsman within the ancient city walls of York, but only if he's carrying a bow and arrow. What? (laughs) So there's lots of things that can go wrong. But you know what? Things that we do wrong are not really sin. They're the symptoms of sin. The problem, the cause, is that we are born separate from God. We're born with this debt that you can't pay. You can't help it and you can't get rid of it. If you ever live with a toddler for a week and you try and teach that toddler to say please and thank you, you'll know it can be quite difficult. But has anyone ever had to teach a toddler to say no or mine? Those words come naturally and it's because they're born separated from God, cute as they may be, they have the same problem. And the problem with sin and our separation from God, it limits our lives It puts us in the direct firing line for damaging behaviours like lies, gossip, envy, pride, addictions and more. And the ending is death. Gosh, you think, Flip, this was a talk on hope. I'm feeling quite depressed right now at this point. But you know, if we don't understand the problem that we have, we don't understand the hope that we have either. 
And as a society, we spend billions of pounds dealing with the effects of sin and people's separation from God. We spend billions trying to modify people's behaviour, supporting victims, prolonging life, but our best human efforts don't sort out the problem because it's a debt that we can't pay. The message of Christianity is that Jesus Christ has come and through his death, he has paid your debt. I think you could be probably just a little bit more excited about that. Jesus Christ has come and he has paid your debt. The separation between you and God has been eradicated. Yes, you still live on a fallen planet and yes, we still have problems and issues at the moment, but the separation, the problem, the cause of it has gone. Amen. (laughs) It's sorted out. What does this mean in a nutshell? It means that whatever is happening in your life, whatever is going on, One day, when it's all over, everything will be okay. If things aren't okay now, that's because it's not the end. This is our hope. This is our confident trust and our indication of certainty. This is our priceless hope. But that's just the start of it because it goes further than that. In 1 John 3, it says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So our hope is not just that everything's going to be okay in the end, but that you are becoming like God. You might think, oh, that starts to feel a little bit like heresy. I didn't say you are becoming God, subtle but important difference, but you are becoming like God. What kind of hope is that? What is the destiny of your life? If you watch the media and you look around at the world, the best you can hope for is an uncertain level of enjoyment in life. A body that you have to work hard to keep in order and working well, but that will eventually beat even your best efforts. And when you're really old, potential loneliness and isolation. Even the most successful people. You know, last year there was a film out called The Iron Lady, which told the story of uh, Margaret Thatcher. And whatever you think or thought of Margaret Thatcher as a politician, you would still class her as a pretty successful woman. And yet the picture that started off in this film, she was walking along in a big mac and a headscarf, sort of shuffling along in a shop and getting kind of barged a bit by the crowd as an older woman. And you think, wow, she was one of the strongest, sort of potentially most successful leaders of the late 20th century. And that was how her life has eventually become. What's the destiny of your life? Is that your hope? Are you looking for a future of becoming more and more like God, reflecting more and more of his glory, knowing that at the end of the day, when it's all over, everything will be okay? So do we hang around then trying to make the best of things and wait for our hope to come to pass? There are some Christians who do that. There's some churches that do that, sadly. They look out into the world and they take note of the problems They shut the door, batten down the hatches and hope to hold on. They probably understand the hope that we have, but they don't know how to hope. 
When I said hope was a noun, it's also a doing word, an active thing. We don't just look out for a hope. We do hope. We are hope. It's not just a future thing that has no relevance on the here and now. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a living and active thing. You know, all around this building, there are little red boxes on the wall. Some of you are thinking, are there? I haven't seen those. And you're looking around. There's one at the back, but you don't need to turn around. These little red boxes, there are 27 of them. I know that, not because I'm sad, but because every week myself and Chris Neville go around and we test them to make sure they work. And they're basically so that should the worst happen and we need to evacuate, someone can break the glass and set the fire alarm off. They may never actually be used. They're all powered up, they're ready, they work, but they may never be used. And sometimes our hope in God can be like that. It's there, it's ready, it's all powered up and ready to use. But we leave it behind a sheet of glass that says, for emergencies, break glass. It's for emergencies only. And I read this somewhere, and I can't remember where, so I can't tell you who said it. It wasn't me. It says this, The Christian life, if we really grasp it, is a magnificent obsession with an eternal hope. But it should not be a hope that leads us into an escapist attitude, but pulls us to living life in a whole new dimension. It gives us power to live courageously, to be all God has called us to be in Christ. This changes how we see ourselves, our self-esteem, It changes the things we value inward and not outward. And it changes what we do with the resources that we have, our time and our money. Our world, our community needs hope, doesn't it? And you as a Christian are a carrier of hope into your world. And I just want to draw your attention to something that's in the price tag brochure that we've talked about. Back in September, some of you went to the um, National Day of Prayer and it was introduced to this idea of neighbourhoodprayer.net. And the idea is that they want to see every single street in the country covered in prayer. Um, And so you can go on the website and you can sign your street up and say, yes, I'm going to pray for my street. You have to do it as well, not just sign up to the website. Important thing is that we pray. But I just want to encourage you perhaps to look at that as a life group. Perhaps think about how can we pray for our street? How can we pray for our community in our area you might if you know people in your street get together or do a prayer walk or something like that there's ideas in in the brochure but think about it how can I do that and also be prepared to be the answer for some of the prayers that you pray because God might say that's a great prayer can you do that and that's a challenge to you it all sounds good so far doesn't it but let's reflect back on the verse in Romans Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Oh, okay. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's be honest, we think, when we think about hope, 
that it's good stuff, it's blessings, it's positive expectations. To mention suffering kind of spoils it a bit, doesn't it, really? And I've thought about this verse, and for a long time this verse has kind of puzzled me. Because I can understand that in suffering, as we go through suffering, if we allow God to change us, it does develop our perseverance. We think, well, you know what, I've been through that, I've done that, therefore I can face whatever else life throws at me. And then that increases our perseverance and our character gets developed in all of that, and that's great. But how does that make hope? You sort of think, you know, the more trouble you may go through in your life, actually, surely that leads you the other way to think actually things seem pretty hopeless. And so I was kind of mulling over, how, how does this work? And then about a month, six weeks ago, I watched a program on the TV. And it was about a couple of guys who lived in Mumbai. And I'm sure if you haven't seen it, you've seen Slumdog Millionaire and all those kind of films. And apparently there's this area in the city where they make gold jewellery for Indian women. And they did say that um, 11% of the gold um, in the world actually hangs around the necks of Indian women. And uh, that's more than the... And it's owned by the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, apparently, so they said. But anyway, the whole point is that this area where they make all this gold jewellery, as they make the jewellery and they kind of carve it or whatever you do with it, um, tiny, tiny specks of gold, sometimes just dust, come off. And they get on the floor and they get in people's clothes and they get on the bottom of shoes and they get walked around. And... These guys, what they did, they went out in the early hours of the morning with two buckets and they went down into the sewer. I mean, the sewer anyway, but the sewer in Mumbai, you're like, oh gosh. And this guy came out of the sewer covered in head, from head to foot in sludge and he had two big buckets of sludge. It was horrible. I was like, I'm so glad I can't smell this. But what they did with the sludge was they took it away and they kind of washed it and they cleaned it and they panned it. And then they added mercury to it. The health and safety doesn't exist, does it, in Mumbai? And eventually they took what was left and they put it in this little crucible and they heated it. And eventually, after the whole process, they came out with the tiniest, tiniest nugget of gold. They basically got all of the dirt and all of the sludge. They'd washed it all away and they'd got all the bits of gold that they found, put it all together and they got this tiny, tiny, tiny nugget of gold. And I thought, you know, I think that's what this verse means. Because as we do go through times in our lives that are hard, as we go through difficulties and as we go through problems, so it takes away all the, the bad stuff. We kind of come down to what's really important. You see, when we think about hope, we can get stripped in this life of our happiness, but we can't lose, be, lose our joy. We can get stripped of our health, But one day we're going to get given a glorious new body. We can even be stripped of our friends and our families, but we can never be alone when we have the company of God. When people die, we grieve, but we don't grieve as people who have no hope because we know the separation is temporary. The sufferings in this life cannot touch this tiny this nugget of gold that is the centre. And when you wash it all away, what you're left with is your hope. And that's priceless. But what do we do when we lose sight of hope? Because it does happen, doesn't it? We sometimes do lose sight of hope. And I want to just thank my life group for inadvertently inputting this particular part of the talk. But I'd like to just introduce you to a little story that happens in the book of 2 Kings and chapter 4. It's in the Old Testament. 
And I'm just going to read from verse 8. One day, Elisha went to the town of Shunem. A wealthy woman lived there and she urged him to come to her house for a meal. After that, whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for something to eat. She said to her husband, I'm sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. Let's build a small room for him on the roof and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair and a lamp. Then he will have a place to stay whenever he comes by. One day Elisha returned to Shunem and he went up to his room to rest. And he said to his servant Gehazi, tell the woman from Shunem I want to speak to her. When she appeared, Elisha said to Gehazi, tell her we appreciate the kind concern you've shown us. What can we do for you? Can we put in a good word for you to the king or the commander of the army? No, she replied, my family take good care of me. Later, Elisha asked Gehazi, what can we do for her? Gehazi replied, she doesn't have a son and her husband is an old man. Call her back again, Elisha told him. And when the woman returned, Elisha said to her as she stood in the doorway, next year at this time, you'll be holding a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she cried. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. Sure enough, the woman soon became pregnant. And at that time, the following year, she had a son, just like Elisha had said. I want us to think a little bit about this Shunammite woman. I do wish they'd given her a name because Shunammite woman is really quite difficult to say. She was quite a well-to-do lady. She had good social standing. She was spiritually in tune. She recognised that this guy who came by every now and then was a prophet and a holy man. But her life had been marred by a disappointment. She didn't have a son. Some of you may even know what this feels like, but just to go through life thinking... Is it going to happen this month? And then the disappointment. And then the build-up of hope. And then the disappointment. And these days, of course, with modern technologies and contraceptions, people get married and they can wait for years to have children. But back in the day, you, you got married and it was pretty much expected that it would happen fairly quickly. And there was a certain amount of shame and stigma in being barren at the time. And I can just imagine this lady as she goes on and on of month after month of hope and disappointment and more hope and more disappointment, eventually getting to a point saying, that's it, enough, I'm done. I can't cope with this anymore. So she sort of puts it in a room, shuts the door, locks it and throws away the key. And instead she puts her her eye and her attention on other things, which is probably how she built her wealth and her social standing. I can just imagine her making cakes for the Women's Institute. Or being the leader of the town's women's guild, you know? The way she kitted out the room for the prophet. I can just imagine her home was probably immaculate. I bet she had cream carpet, you know? And when the prophet asked her, what could he do? She was quick to say, my family takes good care of me. Immediately. And it shows something about her that was a bit like, no, I'm a giver. I'm not a receiver, I'm a giver. And... I can identify with that a bit. I don't know if you can sometimes. I quite like being the person who's the giver. I'm not quite so comfortable being the one on the receiving end. And it's pride, really, if you want to call it what it really is. But, you know, as we, if we want to be givers, we also have to be receivers. Otherwise, the maths doesn't work, does it? If we all want to give, no one wants to receive. 
And if someone comes and they want to give something to you and you say no, 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 because you're wanting to be the giver and you're too proud, you actually do them out of the blessing of being able to be a giver. And this lady was a giver and not a receiver. But she's dealing with a prophet, a man of God, and he knows what he's talking about. And so he sees straight through and he says, next year this time you're going to be holding a son in your arms. You'd think she'd go, oh, wow, I've been hoping for that forever. But she doesn't. She says, no. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up. Why does she say no? Surely a child is the one thing that she wants. It's because she's been disappointed before lots of times. She's lost sight of hope. And she just wants to protect herself from further pain. So she shut the door. Have you done that? Have I done that? Oh yes, sometimes. The problem with this way of dealing with our disappointments is that it contracts our faith. We pray for someone to be healed and they don't get healed. So we then don't want to apply our faith to that again because we might be disappointed. And so our lack of faith in prayer can get to the point where it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and you feel like you're praying to a God who's benign, who doesn't want to do anything, and that's not the God of the Bible. And in the book of Hebrews, there's a chapter about faith, and it says faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the thing that drives you towards the thing that you're hoping for. It's the thing that motivates you. If we don't hope, we don't need any faith. And there's a long list in that chapter in Hebrews 11 of people who did great things by faith. But then at the end of the list, there's the people who did have great faith, but they never saw the thing that they hoped to see. You may be familiar with the story of William Wilberforce who fought for a long time to see the abolition of slavery. And I wonder if he ever gave up at times and thought, this is hopeless, I'm never going to get there. Slavery was abolished by the English Parliament in 1833 in August. William Wilberforce died in July of 1833. So although it happened, and yes, when he died, he may have known it was going to be fulfilled... He never actually saw the thing that he'd worked so hard to do and he never actually saw the thing that he'd hoped for. And some of you this morning are sitting here hoping for things that are going to happen but you're never going to see them in your lifetime. But they're still going to happen. And something that struck in my mind very much from when Gavin Calver spoke the other week, he said this, I want to see the biggest revival in young people in the UK that we have ever seen or I want to die hoping. And I thought, yeah, that's how we do it. Hope is a choice that we have to make daily. Hope, we can wake up in the morning, can't you? And you can go, ugh. Or you can wake up and you can go, is this the day? Is this the day when I see the thing that I'm hoping for? Is this the day when I'm going to get healed? Is this the day when the person I'm praying for is going to come to know God? Is it today? Is it today? And you can live in hope. It's a choice. And just coming towards the end, I just want to put in one more thing really that I think is a really practical suggestion of how we can live in hope. And when I first say it, you might think that's a bit weird, but let me explain it. But this is my suggestion of how we can live in hope and this really helps me. Sing. Some of you are like, oh, I can't sing. doesn't matter. We're not talking about the X factor. We're talking about hope. Sing. It's actually something biblical. Read the Psalms. And I think God has built into the kind of 
the makeup of human beings, this thing that singing brings hope. Because it's not just something we do in church. If you think back to when people were in slavery, they often sang together to give each other hope and to build each other up. You know that during the Second World War, they sang songs like There'll Be Bluebirds Over the White Cliffs of Dover Tomorrow. I don't remember this, just so that you know. I've just heard about it. But they're singing a song of hope, and they sing it together. They used to get together and sing, and they're going, Tomorrow, it's going to be okay. It's a song of hope. We'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when. I'm not going to sing it. But I know it's going to happen. They were inspiring each other with songs of hope. And remember, they were doing it when they didn't know that in 1945, the world war was going to be over. We can look back and we go, oh yeah, but you only had two more years to go. They didn't know that at the time. Could have gone on for another 25. They didn't know. And they sang songs of hope as a community. So when we know that we have a confident trust, an indication of certainty, when we know that the separation between us and God has been removed, when we can come into his presence, when we know that at the end of the day everything is going to be okay for us, we are becoming more and more like God, more and more glorious, what kind of songs of hope can we sing? Quite good ones, I think. Yeah? Yeah? And as the the band are going to come back now, because we are going to go into a time of worship to finish, but and we're going to sing. And if you're fairly new to this, or you're just checking us out, and you might think, oh, this is all a bit weird, that's fine. You don't need to sing. You can just listen. You can sing if you want to. That'd be great. But you don't have to. You can just listen and think. And if you've heard something this morning about hope, and you've thought, I'd like to know a bit more about that. Please come and talk to us. Please come and ask us. And we can talk a little bit more about what it means to hope as a Christian. But you know, if you're a Christian this morning and you're really, everything's great. You're having a really great time. Life is really treating you well. When we come to worship this morning, I want you to sing. And I just don't mean sing, because you can sing from your throat, can't you? If you're in a choir, you'll be told you have to sing from your diaphragm. But you know, we can sing from the soul. So if you're, everything's going well for you this morning, I want you to sing, really sing. Because I want your song of hope to bless and encourage those around of you who may need to hear it. And if you're this morning actually struggling a bit with all this and you feel like you've lost hope or maybe there's a bit of despair around, I want you to sing. Not from your throat, not from your diaphragm, but from your soul. Because it will lift your spirit. It will put good words on your mouth. We're going to sing a song that says 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. And I want you to find, maybe not 10,000 this morning, but some reasons for your heart to have hope and not despair this morning. Are you up for that? Let's stand. Let's sing. Not just sing, but let's sing.